every student wants to learn. Every human being wants to learn. The, the student that is the, the best Ramon player in the state of Georgia is still hopefully learning things in my classroom, just as much as the student that just picked up a trombone for the first time. I, I try to make sure my students have a voice, whether they're gonna be a performer or an educator or a music therapist or just a music enjoyer. So I was a pretty different kid, um, having only attended British schools and done British things. Basically, I raised my hand and declared that it was no revolution, but instead an immature rebellion by some arrogant colonies, which um, earned me an express lane pass to the principal's office, naturally. Teaching is teaching, learning is learning, and I, I love to present, but there's something different about the energy of a group of high school kids, especially at these future Georgia educators days. See if I can get them excited about what is a truly noble and great profession. That memorable or magical teacher that you talked about will be you for somebody else in 10 years. I want my face on this wall with all of these teachers that have inspired me and changed my life. For me, it's been really exciting, especially because the only thing that I really dreamt about was being the Woodland High School Teacher of the Year. Man, talk about being humbled by seeing how many great teachers we have in our state. Welcome to the Page Talks podcast, where we discuss issues critical to the work of professional educators and public education. The Professional Association of Georgia Educators is the state's largest educator membership association and leading advocate for educators and public education. PAGE is also a valuable resource for member needs through legal representation, legislative services, and professional learning. I'm Craig Harper, Executive Director for PAGE and the host of the PAGE Talks podcast. This episode presents a conversation with 2023 Georgia Teacher of the Year, Michael Cabido. Michael is the AP Music Theory Teacher and Band Director at Woodland High School in Bartow County, his alma mater. He also served two years as the drum major for the Redcoat Marching Band at the University of Georgia. A full bio and links to the Georgia Department of Education's Teacher of the Year website are included in this episode's show notes. You're really going to enjoy getting to know more about him through this conversation. Michael, thank you for taking time out of the hectic schedule as the Georgia Teacher of the Year to join me on this episode of the Page Talks podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I'm a proud member of Page, and I'm excited to be here to share some thoughts with everyone today. Well, that's terrific. I know you've already had a few months of exciting service as the teacher of the year with a lot more to go going forward, but I want to talk to you about your experience so far and, and just dive into your thoughts about how things are going. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So if you don't mind, just so our listeners will know a little bit about you, from your perspective, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I was born in Okinawa, Japan. I started school in the British school systems in England, but uh, in second grade in about 2002, my family moved to Cartersville, Georgia. So I, my public school education began then. In Cartersville, I went to Cloverleaf Elementary, South Central Middle School, and Woodland High School, where I am now a teacher. So my entire educational journey has kind of come full circle. Uh, I went to the University of Georgia, for my undergraduate degree in music education. And now I'm a high school band director going on eight years of teaching at my alma mater. That's always pretty interesting coming back to the place where you were a student and uh, diving right back into a job that has a whole lot of expectations around responsibility for a lot of students and putting a product out on the field on Friday nights for football games and, and uh, other kinds of competitions. What was that like as a brand new 
teacher coming into your your former high school environment and then taking on that kind of responsibility? Well, it was a dream come true, really. I remember in my sophomore year of high school, my dream job was to be a band director at Woodland High School working with my band director at the time, Eric Willoughby. So getting the chance to go and be his assistant director early in my career was honestly a dream come true. I, I didn't notice or realize how much work Mr. Willoughby had put into making um, the experience I had possible until I got the job. And it was a huge undertaking. As, as many of you know, high school bands are doing a lot of stuff during the school day, but one of the big things they do is the marching band product. And there's a lot of expectation and things that people are looking forward to seeing that you know, band directors have to find a way to bring to life. So learning about the rigor and the extra things that had to be done once I got the job was a little intimidating at first, but it's brought a lot of pride and joy to me and my family and our, our band community back in Cartersville. And so how long have you been the, the lead band director? So I was Mr. Willoughby's assistant director for three years, and this would be year four for me being the head director at Woodland. Yeah, so being teacher of the year is quite an experience, but one of the things that happens is you come out of your school environment and you serve for a year with the Department of Education, so you're out of that classroom. And as we had an opportunity to talk about once before, it's really hard for a band director to step out of that role and, and have somebody that can come in and take that over. So you've been in a really unique fortunate situation that allowed that to happen more smoothly than it might in other in other situations. So how, how have y'all been handling that? Yeah, it was really like the stars just aligned when we found out that if I were to become the teacher of the year, that I'd be stepping out of the classroom for a year. Of course, panic ensued because being a band director is more than teaching from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. It's also running a year-long program, and there are a lot of different moving parts that go with that. But I was really fortunate that Mr. Willoughby was retiring at the end of the school year and was looking for, you know, uh, getting back into the music classroom. He was a principal before he retired. He's like, I want to teach band again and get back in front of kids and make music and teach music. And I was announced as the, the winner for the state. And that meant that there was a job open for him to come in and help out. So him and my former middle school band director, who's retired, also came in. So they're both working 49% with my assistant director, Holly Maldonado. And they're doing a great job. So when we talk about stars aligning or prayers being answered, this situation is the epitome of it. Well, it's just amazing that that could happen. And you had some people that were willing to step up and fill in with your responsibilities because that's that's difficult in any circumstance, but especially in a band program. So that, that's terrific. You've been out of the classroom for this not a very long time period. Your your official responsibility started in July, so it's just been a few months. But what's what are your responsibilities as teacher of the year, and as a follow-up to that, like what's been different than you expected as you took on this role? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And being teacher of the year for the state, really, there are a lot of different hats that I wear this year and that the ones before me wore as well. One of the newer roles is being an ex-officio member of the State Board of Education. So if you don't know how that process works, the State Board of Education is made up of a representative from all the different districts around the state. So there are 14 members on the state board. And I serve as a 15th member that kind of serves as the voice of teachers. So as we discuss different policies or rulings or ideas, I get to be the advocate and ambassador for the teachers in the state, which is a huge responsibility, but it's really amazing that our state allows a teacher voice to be a big part of that conversation. Uh, in addition to serving on the state board of education, I, I do serve on a few other educational boards around the state you know, promoting excellence in education and trying to improve 
um, different policies surrounding it. I also do a lot of keynote speeches and sessions and clinics around the state at different conferences. So I really have been spending the year, if we were to boil it down, being an, I'm just an ambassador and an advocate for the great things that teachers need to make our students successful. Well, it's a wonderful opportunity and also an awesome responsibility to be in that role. So I'll address a couple of those things that you've mentioned. But first, with the Board of Education, it is a a unique opportunity that a teacher of the year has to interact at that level, at the uh, really the top level of policymaking for education by being an ex officio member of the Board of Education. So what what has that been like? How have the board members – so I think you're the third teacher of the year that's actually done – this, so they're accustomed to it. But how has that process been for you as far as any induction to the board or being welcomed onto the board? You know, are they actively reaching out to you to, to seek your thoughts on what the kinds of policies that they're working on or just in general, what's that experience like? I'm the second teacher that served a full term on the state board, but I'm the third teacher to be there because they passed the legislation making this happen at the end of Tracy's term. But for me, it's been honestly, a great learning experience. I've learned so much about education around our state in different districts, different regions, um, different just different parts of our state that I really had no opportunities to, to experience or be immersed in. The board is full of a lot of passionate people that are really interested and in, invested in education in our state. So it's also really exciting for me to get to see people that are there that maybe aren't necessarily in the classroom or never were in the classroom, but are still committed to students succeeding. So then the induction ceremony was really a lot of drinking from the fire hydrant (laughs) all at once, trying to learn the processes and procedures and protocols. But um, the board has been very welcoming and very interested in hearing the teacher voice, which is uplifting. So they just had a uh, board retreat, so you got to participate in that too and really think about what they have, you all have as a group going forward into this year. Is any, anything particularly pop up for you as a significant effort that the board's thinking about? The board retreat, which I believe they do this every year in terms of picking a program or a theme of the program, the theme this year was centered around the workforce and making sure preparing students for the workforce. They had a lot of great presentations about um, CTAE pathways. I was able to speak about the importance of the arts in education, not only as an industry in the state of Georgia, but also in the sense that it helps students um, be more prepared for college if that's the route they take or for military service if that's the route that they take and really how the arts are, you know, not only allowing students to get into medical school at higher rates, but also allowing them to be more prepared to be creative and innovative in the workforce, which that's what we need. But the big takeaways from that conference are the state board is not only thinking about helping students today, but also invested in helping make sure that students are ready for tomorrow. So that if there's a big takeaway, that that ability to see into the future and try to set the path for the future is really promising for us. So they are concerned about all students, of course, but another subset of students that they want to make sure that we have uh, a strong pipeline and a strong workforce development for is about the teacher pipeline and future Georgia educators. And one of the things that the board did last year, the Department of Education and the board did through Sherry Goldman's services teacher of the year was the teacher burnout report. And there are a number of concerns that came up from that report that affect the retention and recruitment of teachers. 
And so I know that work is going to continue. Is the board still thinking about that report and what they can do to support the pipeline? Absolutely. I think the board and the Department of Education both are really invested in making that report that Sherry and the team um, created and, and making it have some real traction that lasts. Um, you can see with the employment employee assistance program through the Department of Education and the board um, providing you know mental health resources for teachers around our state. Uh, there are a lot of other protocols that are in the works right now that I'm not sure I have liberty to speak on fully at this time that are in the works to make what a great report was become more than just a report. It's really like a lot of the time we see reports being written or things being talked about and the action doesn't follow it. But I'm really proud of what the board and the Department of Education are doing and making that report come to life in tangible ways. So, I mean, those the things addressed in the teacher burnout report. And if you haven't read that report yet, I encourage you to pause this podcast, go look it up and read through it and, and find some ways, especially if you're a leader in a school system or in a school, read through that and, and do some assessment of what, what you're doing and what you could be doing better. Um, but seeing that um, engagement with that has been really, really exciting. When I was When I was running for teacher of the year, if that's what you want to call it, one of the big things I talked about was teacher burnout retention and recruitment, because that is a thing that we're facing right now. And if we don't get a handle on that soon, we're going to face the repercussions of that sooner than we would want or deserve to. So that's a that's a great report. I'm excited to see the investments still be there. Most definitely. And I will put a link to that report in the show notes for this episode so we'll, so people can easily find that. Of course, some of the things that were highlighted in that report and that were so critical to think about were just the critical nature of having time to prepare for the work that teachers do. And the issues with planning time and collaboration time and everything that that a teacher needs to be able to think and reflect on in order to be able to do the best job possible. As leaders would all say, also, there's the compounding factor of all the issues with shortages and needing to have coverage across the school day and everything else. So there are some, some competing uh, pressures on teacher's time. But if we don't take a good hard look at it and try to figure out how can we best help teachers balance all of the things that they need to juggle to be successful in the classroom, we'll never get them taken care of. Right. I think about, you know, you see on social media, whatever social media platform you use, you see people posting memes or GIFs or reels or videos talking about the biggest thing that I'm seeing is time. It's the time spent sub subbing for teachers that are out because we can't find substitute teachers. Well, there's a reason we can't find those substitute teachers or um, having my planning time being occupied doing this or sitting in meetings or doing whatever it is. And I know that every district is different. I know in, in my district, I'll brag on Bartow County for a second. Um, we have dedicated protected collaboration time and dedicated protected uh, what we call office hours. So if I want to schedule a meeting with a student or have students come in during that time, I can. If I want to have that time for planning, I can use it for planning. But there's protected time where my principals will not allow someone to come into my classroom unless it is approved. And those are things that I think, depending on your school district and what you've got going on, I think taking a look and assessing those things in the burnout report and say, this is something I know I can fix for my teachers. I think we all have to be doing that. I know our county has done that in, in some of the areas, and I know a lot of counties are, but that teacher time element, you know, people take for granted the passion that teachers have. They're like, well, they'll do it because they just love what they do. And we do love what we do. Don't hear me the wrong way. 
But I do think that sometimes we we take for granted that passion, that love, and eventually that flame just burns out because of it. Even if a school can't do as as uh, Bartow County does for you all, even if you can't do it 100% of the time, doing it as often as you can says a whole lot about your commitment to taking care of your teacher's time, protecting that time so they can plan, collaborate, and, and not have uh, pressure to be on duty with something every minute of the day um, while they're in the, in the schoolhouse. Another uh, issue with pipeline, Paige tries to support in lots of different ways, encouraging people to go into the profession. One of those is through Future Georgia Educators. It's a program we've had for a number of years where high school students can be in, a, in an extracurricular activity uh, where they learn about the profession, have some experiences in their school. But we also do conferences around the state, uh, usually 10 a year, where we go to a college campus in different regions of the state and invite high school students to come in. And one of the things that happens at those terrific events is they get to hear from a keynote speaker. And often we have teachers of the year, former teachers of the year come and speak. And I know you've gotten to do a couple of those events so far. I've, I've been to one of them and did an absolutely fabulous job connecting and engaging with those high school students. But what's that experience been like for you, uh, particularly with these future Georgia educators? But then in general, just you mentioned that you've been going to conferences What's that been like to now be in front of adults and others and having to present your message to people? Well, I'll I'll say that I've really enjoyed those future Georgia Educators Days. Those are such great conferences. Uh, Mary Ruth and the whole team do such a great job um, putting together a day that is informative and engaging and exciting. And for me, like you said, I've been speaking at a lot of conferences this year and speaking to adults is, is great. It's fun. I, I think teaching is teaching, learning is learning, and I, I love to present. But there's something different about the energy of a group of high school kids, especially at these future Georgia Educators Days, because the truth of the matter is some of those kids are gung-ho, ready to be teachers. And some of those kids are sitting on the fence. You know, when we were teenagers, not all of us were sworn to do what they dreamed of doing when they were kids. Uh, but those days are really important because it allows those students to kind of see what the future could look like. And I've enjoyed it a lot because I get to engage with high school kids again, which I've missed because I've been out of the classroom for a couple of months, but also see if I can get them excited about what is a truly noble and great profession. What is your message to high school student who's thinking about going into teaching, but they're, they're on the fence maybe? What, what do you think is the, is the winning message that helps them make that decision? What I try to do is when I talk to any group of educators, whether they're future or current or even retired, and I like to talk about the, the, what the magic of teaching is. There is a magic in what we do and what we share. So with those high school kids, I ask them to think about, you know, who is a magical or memorable teacher in your life? What makes them magical or memorable for you? And forcing them to go through this thought process and think through those people that made a difference for a lot of people makes them hungry to make that difference for somebody else. So I talk about, we talk about the magic of teaching and we go through what made them a magical teacher. And we talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts that goes into becoming magical. Some people think that the it factor is something you're born with. And for some people, it kind of is. But for all of us, it's something we foster. We develop that magic or it factor. So we talk about strategies to, to become better leaders and build better relationships and understand the rigor and relevance of what we do in the classroom. 
But by the end of our time together with those students, we talk about, you know, if you put these things into action and you find a way to be committed and passionate about what we're doing, that memorable or magical teacher that you talked about will be you for somebody else in 10 years. Now, I think when that light bulb goes off for those kids, they think about somebody saying their name 10 years from now because they changed somebody's life. For, for some of those kids, the light bulb goes off or the spark ignites and I've seen it both times. I've done this in a a lot of kids and it's been really exciting. It's great that you get to come participate in those events. And I think hearing from you, somebody that's, that's been doing this for a number of years that has the excitement, the passion that you do for what you do with the kids at Woodland High School is what helps them see that themselves up on that stage doing what you're doing. And so, so often uh, the encouragement to do something you're thinking about is happens because you connect with somebody or you see yourself and somebody else that, you know, I can do that too. And if I, if I remember one of our previous conversations, you talked about that a little bit about your experience at Woodland and knowing that, you know, I want to be, I want to be in this position in a few years and this could be me. And in particular, there was something about some pictures going down a wall. If you don't mind just recounting that story a little bit and what that inspired you to do. Well, the first first story is one that I alluded to where um, Eric Willoughby was my high school band director. My dream job was to be Eric Willoughby's assistant high school band director because he was that person for me that was memorable and magical and still is a huge mentor and friend to me. But the other the story I think you're referencing is at Woodland High School in the hallway. There used to be a hallway of all the past teachers of the year. So I'd walk down the hallway. I knew I wanted to be a teacher and say, oh, that's that's Miss Kendall. I want to be like Miss Kendall. Or that's Miss Freeman. I want to be like Miss Freeman. Or that's Mr. Willoughby. I want to be like Miss. I want my face on this wall with all of these teachers that have inspired me and changed my life. So that was a big dream of mine to be back at Woodland, to be the teacher of the year and have my face in that portrait hallway. So that dream came mostly true. Unfortunately, the year that I got it, they decided that they didn't want that wall to be there anymore. So my face is alone in another hallway somewhere <laughs> in the school. Uh, but that that inspiration for me is is obviously still pretty relevant in my life and, and keeps me driving a little bit. That's really cool that you'd had that thought process going into this. So thinking about Teacher of the Year and, and what that's like, what happened for you each step of the way? Because first, there's your school level. And then you're in competition, I guess, basically against other people in your district. And then then you've got this large group of people at the state. And so just walk us through your feelings as you went through that and what each step was like for you. Yeah. So for us in Barton, I know it's maybe different in other school systems. If you win for the school, which that was my goal, I, I was pretty sure that was where my journey was going to end. Um, but if you win for your school, you go into, I guess, competition with they pick a high school winner, middle school winner, elementary school winner for the county. I was chosen as the high school winner. And a funny story, when we were rehearsing in band class one day and the kid came back from the bathroom and on the way to the bathroom in our school, we have a lobby that's got a lot of glass windows. And Nick, little tuba player, comes in the band and said, Mr. Cabido, all these superintendents and principals are walking over here. Is everything okay? And I honestly had no idea what was going on. So (laughs) Nick sat down, we got back to playing in class. And then that's when the announcement was made that I was a county finalist. Then we go to this dinner and for our county round, we had to write a couple essays and get some letters of recommendation and all of this stuff. And I was announced as the Bartow County winner. And then from that round, you go to the state round where you write five more essays, you get three more letters, uh, you submit all your resume and all this documentation to the state and they pick 
10 finalists. And I was 100% sure that I was not going to be included in that, but I was just thankful to be involved. Um, and then I was announced as a top 10 finalist. And I found out because I got an email from my former AP calculus teacher who I work with at Woodland. And she said, congratulations. I said, on what? <laughs> so that's how I found out that I was a finalist for the state. Uh, and then we went and there's a really long day where we did um, an interview for like 45 minutes with a panel of like 15 people. We had to give a speech, all 10 of us did. And man, talk about being humbled by seeing how many great teachers we have in our state. The, the other nine finalists, every single one of them um, inspire me daily. I think about what would I do if I was Jesse or what would I do if I was Julie in this situation? But with that experience, I was 100% sure I wasn't going to win. Uh, we get to the, the gala and then I'm announced. And the rest, of the, I guess, is kind of history. For, for me, it's been really exciting, especially because the only thing that I really dreamt about was being the Woodland High School Teacher of the Year. I had not had a vision. I didn't even know what Georgia Teacher of the Year was when I was in high school, walking down that hallway. But the journey has been 99% fun and amazing and 1% nervousness because every time you win something you're, you're starting to think about the next round of something uh but it's it's been a whirlwind of pure joy and glee now that i've had a, several chances to talk to you and i've heard your story and and heard you present at several of these conferences i think what the selection committee saw in your application or in your interview is just this very unique perspective you have on education because of some of your experiences as a child and then going through the same district and and following your mentor, going into your professional career. Uh, and your experience at the University of Georgia is as drum major for a couple of years. So all of those things together. And the fact that you're a phenomenal teacher and you're so involved in your community and, and even in some band projects that are statewide. Certainly, I can see from your experiences that you're a, just a terrific candidate to represent Georgia's teachers because you're right. When you get into an environment like the Teacher of the Year selection process, all of those teachers come to that event, whether they're in the top 10 or not, when you start interacting with them and finding out what they're doing in their, in their schools and their communities. It's just phenomenal, the passion and the energy and the excitement that all of you bring to your schools. You touched on it just briefly as we began, but if, if you don't mind giving just a little bit more of that history about how you started out your school experience and how that came about. Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for all your kind words. I appreciate you speaking so kindly about me. Well, like I said before, I, I lived in England for the beginning of my educational experience. Uh, I went to British schools. My family wanted us to be cultured in or experience different cultures around the world. So when I was in Japan, we didn't really live on the military base. When I was in England, we didn't live on the military base. I was a typical British boy. I played football. I was quite good at it. I had a really cute British accent. And when I moved here, I was pretty different. Uh, we moved to a pretty a fringe rural suburban town in Northwest Georgia of Cartersville. Uh, I was one of the few people of color in my school. I was definitely the only one with a strong British accent. And I was also the only one that didn't know what baseball was at the time. So I was a pretty different kid, um, having only attended British schools and done British things. My first week of school, when I got here, we were learning about the American Revolution, which was interesting. And my teacher was asking the students, what do you know about this? And the kid talked about George Washington and wooden teeth and cherry trees or Ben Franklin kites and things. And it was my turn to share. And I basically raised my hand and declared that it was no revolution, but instead an immature rebellion by some arrogant colonies. 
which um, earned me an express lane pass to the principal's office, naturally. And that's a, that's a pretty comical story. It's pretty funny. It's something you'd see on a sitcom somewhere. But the truth behind that story is that it um, it shaped a lot of what I believe about education and the way I look at kids and situations. I'm teaching in the town where I grew up. So um, that perspective is even more enhanced. But yeah, I learned about the way that I felt as a kid versus the way that we feel as an audience when you hear that story, because we laugh now and I laugh now. But as a kid, I went from being a kid that loved school to being a kid that was scared of school. I went from being a kid that understood everything going on to a kid that did not know what I did wrong. Um, So when I look at kids, I I think about the fact that they have no control over what they bring into the classroom. My job is to not judge them for what they bring into the classroom, but instead help them be more prepared when they leave the classroom. I learned that kids need to feel safe to learn because for a couple of days there, I didn't. It was my first week in a new continent with people that did not talk like me. (laughs) So I I learned that with my kids, my job is to make sure that I look them in the eyes every day and make sure they feel like they're seen in my classroom. I learned that I was able to still learn. I was a pretty smart kid when I moved here. Um, I got tested to be two grades more advanced than my age just because of the, the standards at the time, I guess, in the test at the time. But I still had things to learn, obviously. And I have learned since then that it was not a rebellion in a bad way or arrogance or anything like that. But I also learned that teachers can learn too. I think my teacher learned a new version of American history that day. And I don't know if she appreciated it very much, but she also learned how to deal with kids or handle kids or still support kids that were different than maybe she was used to or expected. So the takeaways from that story start with humor, but usually end hopefully with some inspiration and maybe a little bit of conviction, but mostly motivation on what to do next. Certainly a powerful experience at a very young age. And it also uh, helps us to remember and understand that perspective is everything. Um, Experience can be everything and you don't know what you don't know. And, and you only have what you've gone through or what you've learned that helps you develop the perspective that you have. And so it is important as educators to think about all of that uh, when students come to your classroom and particularly in, because my experience also is in a North Georgia school district and there are, there are large immigrant populations in Northwest Georgia. And so you do have to be aware of and understanding of what those students experiences are coming in because it may have nothing at all that matches up with the way we do school or or how we approach learning. Yeah, and I, that's so true. And this is a high horse that I could dance on all day, but and I have no data to support this, but I will say firmly that I believe that every student wants to learn. Every human being wants to learn. And when I hear teachers talk about kids that don't want to learn, they refuse to learn, I, I, I can't believe that. I don't believe that because of my experience. I know that every kid wants to learn. And I also know that there are kids that the, the will issues we see a lot of the time are associated with skill issues or development gaps that they missed somewhere. And some of those behaviors of seeing like they don't want to learn are really rooted more in frustration or embarrassment from what they don't know yet. So as a teacher, um, when I hear those types of comments from colleagues, which are totally being frustrated is is a fair reaction because that means that there's care there. I, I think it's important that that perspective, like you just said, is is more in the realm of 
how do I support this kid and get them where they want to be versus why is that kid where they are? I, I think that's a huge distinction that hopefully that message helps share too. It's a very fine point of when a student feels like they've lost their motivation to learn something because of either a lack of skill or knowledge that makes them feel that they're the outlier, that they're not like everybody else in class, they're not as smart as other kids in the class, whatever whatever those experiences are, that, do, that does cause them to shut down. And if educators aren't, somebody in their life <laughs> in the school environment isn't paying close attention to that and tries to help them through that difficult, challenging period, we can lose a lot of students who have a lot of potential that's just not not being met. So I'm going to kind of come back to your band experience. Um, and so it's such an interesting teaching role working with band because you have so many different instruments. You have so many I mean, you talk about differentiation, <laughs> the level of skill. Maybe you got a kid that's just interested in band for the first time. They've never played an instrument. And you've got another kid who's had lessons and tutoring since they were in second grade. So you're in a high school environment dealing with all of those things. And you're trying to put a product on the field that the entire community is going to see. And not just your community, but the communities the football team goes to visit. So if you don't mind going to that a little bit about your approach to that and where have you maybe had some of your, your greatest successes helping students find their musical voice? Yeah, that's a, that's a huge question. And, um, and I appreciate you acknowledging the differentiation that takes place in a, in a music classroom. When I think about a band room, there, there are probably at least 15 different types of instruments in my room that I'm having to teach at all times, not to mention teaching students to be literate, um, teaching students how to hear things more clearly or play things more in tune or blend with the, there's so many different skills that we are formatively assessing constantly all day, every day. Um, so when you walk into a band room, it's uh, some people think that we're just preparing for a football game and we're like a jukebox and say, Hey, will you play this? Sure. But that's really not what's happening in a, in a music classroom, music classrooms. We're teaching kids how to master what they're doing on their own so they can contribute to the betterment of the whole with instruments. Some of them are just slides. Some of them you hit, some of them you, you blow through or buzz through. There's so many different nuances to what we do in the music classroom. I'm really proud of our band program to have been, you know, we've marched in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. We played at our state conference and other universities as a featured ensemble. So we've got some students that are achieving musically at really high levels but in our band program, I'm really most proud of the fact that, you know, we've had kids that are the best trombone player in the state of Georgia for years and years. And we've also had students that are just picking up music for the first time as a high school student. So my job as a teacher is to make sure that no matter where you are in your musical career, you are given a voice because you're, giving a ch you're given a chance to learn and grow and do something better than you did yesterday. The, the student that is the the best Ramone player in the state of Georgia is still hopefully learning things in my classroom, just as much as the student that just picked up a trombone for the first time. So in terms of giving students a musical voice, my, I, I walk into the classroom every day, hoping that my students walk out of it just a little bit better at something music related. Sometimes it's playing. Sometimes they're better at listening. Sometimes they're better at assessing or analyzing or describing music. Um, music is one of those few things that students and people can do for the rest of their life. And music is one of those things. And the arts 
are one of those things that we consume more than anything else in a day. I mean, we don't read as much as we listen to music. We don't do calculus as much as we listen to music, I hope. Um, but, you know, I, I try to make sure my students have a voice, whether they're going to be a performer or an educator or a music therapist or just a music enjoyer. That's that's the goal. And if I remember right, you play a lot of the instruments that you teach so that you're able to demonstrate to your students the technique and the approach to those instruments. Yeah, when we say play, like I would not perform for you on most of them, um, but I, I can play, I can, I know all the fingerings for all the instruments that I'm trying to teach. It'd be pretty hypocritical if I went and told a kid to learn how to play this and I couldn't model for it to a certain extent. My main instrument is trumpet, and that's what I went to school for. And, you know, every Easter and Christmas, I'm playing holiday gigs and doing that. I model mostly for my students on the trumpet so they can hear what, you know, having a voice through an instrument looks and sounds like but yes i can i can perform on all of them on a, a decent level to make sure my students trust and believe that i know what i'm talking about <laughs> and another impressive thing i know from your from your biography is that you also do ap music and you had all of your students that took the tests pass at a pretty high level and if people aren't familiar with that ap test it is difficult yeah, it's one of the harder AP exams. Students, you know, they do the multiple choice section, which involves listening and dictating things and answering things by looking at scores of symphonies and different pieces of music and knowing different types of scales and things like that. But there's also they have to write music that they hear. So they hear it three or four times. They have to write either it's harmonic stuff or melodic stuff. They have to write like Bach chorales, like four part voice leading with no mistakes. It's a lot of really different tasks. So a lot of people consider it to be one of the harder AP tests. And that class that I taught had students in there that hadn't really been in music classes except for their band experience in middle school. And some of them were sophomores. They had been in a music class for four and a half years up to that point when they took that AP class, where some of the students in the class had been playing piano since they were four years old. So the differentiation level was wide. Some of the kids were percussionists. Some played trumpet. Some played flute. Some played piano. Some played guitar. One of them is a singer-songwriter, guitarist. He was in chorus and he was in band in middle school. So like the, the ability level walking into that room was incredibly wide and incredibly diverse. But it goes back to what we talked about earlier of, you know, I believe that every student just wants to learn. And my goal in that class was for every kid to learn. I didn't really care too much about the test. I didn't really know what to expect on the AP exam. I thought the students would do well. I did not know that all every single kid would take the test and every single kid would pass the test. So that was really exciting. But I think that goes to show that if you give kids a chance to learn and tailor your curriculum to meet the kid, it's crazy what they can do. I mean, kids are brilliant. As a band director, you also have this unique experience of sharing with the community what you've been doing in a way that maybe you don't unless you're a, a drama teacher or a chorus teacher or some other performing arts educator. So what is, what is that like for you and what's been your best experience when you're wherever you are <laughs> on a Friday night and your kids are out there performing? What's what's that like for you? Well, on the Friday night experiences are always fun because we, you know, we have alumni come back, even some from when I was in school at Woodland coming back just because they like seeing the, the, the marching band on Friday nights. They, they, their experience was so positive that they take time out of their Friday nights to go to a high school football game just to see the band. 
So that's that's really exciting, but it also um, adds a certain amount of pressure to you want to live up to what that former student's experience was. Or those we've got band parents that their kid graduated five years ago and they still come and help the band out because they loved it that much. But that means for me, I've got to deliver an experience every year that is unique, but still following along with the tradition of what we do. I find it really exciting. I love seeing former students come back and, oh, we're getting married. We met in the Woodland High School band and we graduated five years ago. We're getting married now. Oh, that's great. Seeing seeing kids have those stories and experiences is really fun. And when we do our concerts, our we have all four of our bands play on the concert. And then for our Christmas concert, the whole marching band will circle around the whole entire audience. We'll play our parade sequence. And that's one of those things where all the kids that have graduated come back and love it. And all the parents, people will show up, even though they don't have a kid in the band program, we'll have a full entire auditorium. Those experiences are really exciting because like you said, it's one of those few things where we get to present what our kids are learning and the community has a good understanding of why it's important. So it's really unique and kind of nerve wracking, but mostly just it's exciting. It's a family reunion every Friday night and every concert. Talking about family, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention to give you an opportunity to talk about your wife, Emily, who also is an educator. So talk a little bit about that, you know, the experience of, of two educators in a household and having to, you know, we talked about burnout and all those other things earlier, but also just kind of the different roles you have and and uh, supporting one another and thinking about what you do in the communities that you serve. Yeah, one of the best teachers I know is my wife. Emily is unbelievable. And I, she had a very unique journey where she started off as a journalist. She was, we met at UGA in the Redco band. So it was really exciting. And then she went off to be a journalist for a few years, uh, enjoyed it, but knew that she wanted to change of pace. Her dad was a teacher in Cobb County for 30 years. So she's like, maybe I should try this teaching thing out. So she got her um, MAT and started teaching right at the beginning of the pandemic. So her first year was going great. And then March, 2020 hit and her life as a teacher changed all of a sudden. Getting to watch her teach through COVID was really inspiring because we actually shared an office. <laughs> so I got to actually watch her prepare lessons and stuff. Uh, and she was unbelievable. Getting to see her go through that and learn through that and still inspire kids was really exciting for me. But now that we're back to a relatively normal pace of things, she's still doing really well. I've gotten to actually pop into her classroom a couple of times and watch her in action. Man, talk about a kid magnet. Those kids love her. It's amazing. But with the burnout thing, the thing that we've learned to do as a couple, as two educators, and if you're in a household with two educators, I encourage you to do this. If you have one educator in the household, I would encourage you to do this with your spouse or partner, regardless. We only talk about school stuff now on our drive home. So when we get to the house, unless it's been a crazy day, um, we do not talk about school inside our house just to try to create, you know, protect that time. Now, that means that sometimes I'll be sitting in the garage in my car for an extra half hour to make sure we get all those feelings out and we talk through things. Um, but that's something that we have found help us stay level-headed and keep that passion for teaching alive because, you know, we don't come home and talk shop for six hours, even though we're both nerds, we could. I think that balance has been really important for us. Each of you work in a different district, so you see how educational decision-making goes in two different districts and can compare that. But now as Teacher of the Year, 
uh, as you've mentioned, you're, you're getting to travel all over the state and see how lots of different schools and districts operate, and they even all the way up to the policy level at the, at the board and, and Department of Education level. What have you learned in the, in the few months that you've been doing this about the landscape of education, maybe from that higher level policy perspective that, that maybe you didn't expect or that's just been eye-opening for you? Well, like you said, you're you're totally right. Her being in a different districts, especially through COVID, we got to see how and analyze how people do things differently. But with my travels around the state, I've not only learned how different school systems handle certain things, more importantly, I've learned how different the needs are of different areas of the state. Things that I need in Bartow County are different than what they need in other parts of Metro Atlanta, even, or all across the state. So I've learned the needs are different and they're met in different ways. And it's important for us to acknowledge that while we have the same goal for students, sometimes it requires a different path or a different strategy. And finding that support is really important from the state and board and department of education level. Some of the things I've learned that have been really, really inspiring to me are how many organizations and people are out there to support teachers. I feel like maybe I was sheltered or I wasn't looking hard enough or whatever it was. I didn't realize how many allies there were out there for education, just ready to serve teachers and help teachers serve students with what they need. So if there's anything that's been eye-opening in a really, really positive way, it's the amount of cheerleaders and policymakers and organizations out there that are doing the right work to help teachers be successful. So there's really a theme to a lot of what we've been talking about today, and it's differentiation, whether that's differentiation in a classroom for students or differentiation within a school or a district and certainly across the state. And it's what makes policymaking so hard (laughs) is because the needs are so uh, drastically different across the state, and you and others who've had this experience are getting or just like Paige does with the with our representatives around the state and our opportunity to go to a lot of uh, different districts and experience a lot of different things. You you start to see that so clearly once you have a chance to get out of side of your own bubble. And bubbles aren't bad; it's just they're restricting, uh, and that you just don't see what else is going on. Not because you want to be um, isolated; it's just you're you're so focused on what you're doing in your environment, which is a really important thing to do when you're working with your kids in your classroom, but there is a much larger world out there with a lot of different needs. And I like that word bubbles because I think about the difference between bubbles and silos. And I feel like right now, a lot of us work in silos. And the problem with the silos, you can't see out of it. But with a bubble, you can't if you look hard enough. So I think if we were to approach some things with like we are in our own bubble, we've got to fix the things in our own bubble. But I think it's okay to peek outside of the lens of our own bubble and see what's going on in somebody else's and try to to merge some things. I think I think that might help with some of the policy issues and things that don't allow us to serve everyone the way that they tailor made need. But you're totally right. That's another thing that I've learned that's maybe less positive that some of those it's just impossible to make a policy that fits everyone because everyone is not the same. Well, I've really enjoyed having our conversation today, Michael. Is there anything that we didn't talk about uh, that you'd like to share? I really enjoyed the opportunity and the invitation. I've loved working with Paige this year. It's been a fantastic experience for me to learn more and and, and give back a little bit and, and take away a lot um, from your organization. And I encourage all teachers out there to check out that burnout report all the teachers out there to make sure your membership is up to date with Paige and um, keep up the good fights. 
because the students of tomorrow need us today. And that's really important for us all to remember. Well, thank you so much for your kind words and for your advocacy for teachers during this important year that you've got in front of you. You've been a terrific advocate for public education, a great representative for teachers across the state. And we look forward to many more years ahead of working with you on these important issues that uh, we're all fighting for. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Page Talks podcast with Michael Cabido, Georgia Teacher of the Year. I encourage you to become a regular Page Talks listener by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. Learn more about the Professional Association of Georgia Educators on our website. If you're a Georgia educator and aren't already a Page member, please consider joining us today. Goodbye until next time.